guys my name is amish tripathi and i am the director of uh, the nehru center the nehru center is the cultural wing of the indian high commission uh, in the uk and we uh, we've been in existence for many decades and we organize wonderful events at this very auditorium uh, which is in mayfair in central london sadly as you can see the auditorium is empty it has been empty uh, since we were all uh, put into lockdown uh, due to the corona virus uh, pandemic uh but what we indians believe is that the other side of a crisis is an opportunity and what we have done at the nehru center is move all our events online so now if you attend our online events every single seat is a vip seat like you get a front row uh, at our events no trouble of parking no trouble of traveling all the way uh and most practically all the programs that we would do like uh literary discussions and then dance performances musical performances we are doing them all uh, on our online uh, channels you can register at uh, for our newsletter at our uh, website uh, nehrucenter.org.uk you don't need to write them down they will be displayed at the bottom of the screen you can also come to our uh, facebook page which is a verified page the nehru center you can follow uh, updates on all our events on uh, twitter as well the nehru center that's also a verified account or you can come to our youtube channel again the nehru center we are uh, nothing if not consistent uh, i hope you do uh, come to our online channels and enjoy uh, the events that we are putting up for you uh, thank you so much for all your love and support namaste Namaste my name is Amish Tripathi and I am uh, the director of uh, the Nehru Center and uh, this is a wonderful occasion because I get to interview someone who I'm a fan of uh, he is a fellow author uh, and an and an absolute overachiever he's not just an author he does various other things as well let's just bring Sanjeev online uh, and hey hi Sanjeev how's it going hello everyone Sajeev I mean uh, all of you all of you who are watching this on the Nehru Center should know I read every single book of uh, Sanjeev first time I met him was at uh, the Kolkata Lit Fest and uh, you know and he came up to chat uh, uh, with me and he said hi I'm Sanjeev Sanyal and I said dude you're the one who wrote Indian Renaissance and my that book has gone around my entire family and we actually have debates on it this was what like 8 9 years ago Sanjeev yeah about a decade ago Yeah, it's been a long, long time. And before yes. I jump into the conversation with you, let me do a formal introduction of you so that uh, all our uh, viewers in the UK can know what a super achiever you are. So, Sanjeev Sanyal is currently the principal economic advisor to the government of India and also represents India on a number of international forums. As the co-chair of the G20 Framework Working Group, he's been one of the main architects of the G20's Global Action Plan used to coordinate the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior to joining the government in February 2017, he spent over two decades in the financial sector and was Global Strategist and Managing Director at the Deutsche Bank. He was named Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum in 2010. Sri Sanyal is also, known, is also a well-known urban theorist and writer. In 2007 he was awarded the Eisenhower Fellowship for his work on urban dynamics. 
He's been a visiting scholar at Oxford University, adjunct fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies Singapore, a senior fellow of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society in London, and an honorary professor of the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi, JNU as well. In 2015-16, he served in the Future City Subcommittee of the Singapore government, tasked with building a long-term vision for the city-state. Sanjeev Sanyal attended Sriram College of Commerce, Delhi, and Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar from 1992 to 1995, Oxford University, right here in the UK. His best-selling books include Land of the Seven Rivers, The Indian Renaissance, India and the Age of Ideas, and The Ocean of Churn, which we will be discussing uh, today. All of them published by Penguin Random House. In addition, he has published around 200 articles, columns, and reports in leading national and international publications. What an introduction, Sanjay. We get many achievers, super achievers on the Nehru Center platform, but I think very few have a CV like you do. <laughs> Thank you very much, my friend. You are very kind. And of course, let me say that uh, it's a particular pleasure to do this because uh, quite apart from being a fellow author, um, I can count Amish amongst my dearest friends. So it is a real, uh, really today, uh, 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 you know, something I'm looking forward to. It's an abs- it's an absolute pleasure, and I I love seeing the caricatures of the family behind you. It's yes, good there are caricatures of, uh, of my family. Uh, uh, let me see. I can maybe show everybody. That's what they all yeah. look like. Uh, one yeah. of them is me, my wife, and my two sons. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Okay, what we are going to discuss here is, of course, your book Ocean of Churn, which I thoroughly loved, which I spoke of quite a lot as well. And I remember telling you that one of the downsides in the Indian education system is that we don't teach many of these things to our children. Our education system does not give an insight into our uh, true history. And you've come out now with a children's book, a children's book version of uh, Ocean of Churn. Why don't you show the cover so that it is available in the UK also. Here it is. It's called The Incredible History of uh, of the Indian Ocean. You can read that. So this is the children's version of an earlier book called The um, the Ocean of Churn. And um, yeah, as uh, Amish said, it's a part of my passion to try and try and tell Indian history in a somewhat different way. So Sanjeev, let's, let's dive straight in. And uh, I should uh, remind all of you, his books are, all of them are available on Kindle, on Amazon. Uh, so those of you in the UK who want to read uh, Sanjeev's books, uh, do go to Amazon and buy them and you'll thoroughly enjoy them. I absolutely love uh, love those books. Let's dive straight in, Sanjeev, into history, into the way history is taught. Um, the centrality of the Indian Ocean in ancient trade routes, uh, it has been it has been ignored in history books around the world. It has been ignored in Indian history books as well. Uh, take us through what you have researched through your own. I know you travel a great deal through your research. You read unknown texts. You're a collector of, of maps. Take us through what the Indian Ocean trade route was was like. We will come later into the impact of the uh, uh, of the fact that we ignore this very important part of our history. But take us through what the Indian Ocean trade route was like in ancient times. So you're absolutely right. I mean. India is the only country in the world which actually has an ocean named after it. So it's obviously an important part of our history. There's uh, there's no denying it. 
Um, the problem is that for some reason after independence, our history ended up basically becoming the history of Delhi. Now, this causes all kinds of problems, not the least that there are large parts of the country that simply get dropped off uh, our history narrative. But, you know, so quite apart from the regional uh, aspect to it, there is another aspect to it, which is that because a lot of it is about the history of Delhi rather than of India, it's entirely landlocked. Mm. So what happens is that you end up with completely ignoring the fact that India's coastline has a very different view of history mm. and its relationships with the rest of the world. And of course, the fact that it, because it is this maritime history is linked to the rest of the world, the point you were making, it, it then begins to show how India is not, not just, you know, Indian civilization and isolation, but something that was linked through to everything. So for example, ancient Indians were trading with the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians on one side, they were also uh, trading with the Indonesians, the Vietnamese, all the way through to Korea. So, you know, when you look at uh, a world map, uh, uh, you know, the world's largest Hindu temple is not in India. It's in Cambodia. Singapore is basically named after Singapore or the lion city in Sanskrit. Um, Korean history starts with the marriage of a local prince to a princess from Ayodhya. Now, once you begin to see this, it's everywhere. And your mind boggles at the fact that our own history books don't tell this. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, why has, I'm, and I'm not belittling the importance of Delhi. Uh, but why do you think that is that um, the rest of India is ignored with an impact on how we view our own uh, history? Why? Why has Delhi... Uh, It's a a tricky question. I I have actually not been able to find a good answer to it. Um, Very often it's blamed on colonial era histories. Ironically, I actually read colonial era histories and they they have all kinds of problems in them, by the way. I mean, there's clearly a racist uh, colonial overtone to the kind of narrative there is. But even there, um, um, blaming it on being landlocked is unfair because... The, 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 the British were, of course, maritime themselves. And mm-hmm. so actually they had more respect in some ways for our, our maritime past than our post-colonial history has been. So whatever the reason may be, we have ended up with this history, which is very much about Delhi. In fact, so you're likely to know about obscure dynasties of Delhi, like the Lodhis. Yeah. Basically ruled a very small part of India. But you will be told almost nothing about the Cholas or the Pallavas or the great Ahom kings um, and so on. So it is this this particular bias of history is a post-colonial one. I mean, there are many colonial biases that have also been perpetuated. But this particular one seems to be a post-colonial one. Interesting. You also speak of uh, the centrality of the Indian Ocean. In global trade routes, that Absolutely. essentially whoever control the Indian Ocean control global trade for much yes. of the first millennium, much of the the first half of the no, second it, millennium as well. In so, fact, for a very long time. So, um, you know, Indian Ocean trade starts in the very beginning. You have, um, you know, Harappan Bronze Age merchant sailing out to the um, uh, the Middle East. Uh, four, five thousand years ago. So this is a very early start to this. 
And you see that throughout. So, for example, uh, in during the Iron Age, you have these Bengali and Uriya merchants uh, exploring the eastern coastline. And they begin to go there and begin to settle uh, Sri Lanka. So the majority population of Sri Lanka, interestingly, are genetically and culturally derived from uh, Urissa and Bengal area um, because of these migrations that were happening. And then similarly, you have uh, by certainly the Chola period, for example, uh, what is world trade? You know, it's on one end, the Fatimid Empire in Egypt hmm. to the Red Sea, through to southern India, where the Cholas were ruling, hmm. and then across through the Srivijaya Empire in, in Sumatra, the, the various empires in Java, and then sailing right through the Sunda or the Malacca Straits out towards uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, Khmer and Cham empires in Cambodia and Vietnam. And then, of course, even further out to China. I mean, there are remains of uh, uh, Chola-era Hindu temples uh, along the coastline of China. Um, the Japanese, for example, we, of course, know what are the two major religions of Japan. Uh, Buddhism is one uh, that is better known, but also Shinto. Shinto is derived directly from the word Sindhu. Um, in, it's also the same roots as Hindu. And of course, Shintoism is full of Hindu gods. Um, you know, there there is worship of Saraswati, yeah. worship of uh, Ganesh, and so on. So there is so much influence, economic and cultural, that it really hits you like a brick when you begin to see it. No, one of the simple insights, uh, you know, that I got from your book, which it totally blew my mind, was uh, when you uh, when you said something that is so obvious but never struck. Uh, you know, earlier that Indian Ocean is the only ocean where the winds change direction like clockwork once a year, yes. which makes sailing uh, trade routes, an annual round trip trade route, very convenient. Uh, Absolutely. So this is actually... How did, a that, how did that point strike you, first of all, and then take us through what that meant for trade routes and then the centrality of India? Well, it didn't strike me because once you begin to read texts um, related to uh, to to uh, this this um, this region and maritime history of the Indian Ocean, this is the overwhelming fact. So it's not not something that I sort of discovered somewhere hidden away. I mean, the, there is the Roman era uh, book uh, or manual called the uh, Peripolis of the Erythrian Sea, hmm. and this. Um, uh, it's written in, in uh, ancient Greek um, by possibly a mariner who probably came to India, a Greek mariner based in probably Alexandria. And this manual is basically tells you all about how the winds would s- switch. And um, so you can clearly see, you know, there is no way of missing the fact that the monsoons were the driving force because it is even it, it switches one way for a few months and then switches the other way. So it allows you immediately to, to do a round trip. Yeah, and, so the northeast um, to sail out and, of India and the southwest to come back to India. Yeah. Well, it depends which coast you are on, to be fair. Right, right. Uh, so uh, so if you're on the east coast, for example, you would sail out. In fact, you would be sailing out just about now, a little bit earlier. So some point in middle of November, hmm. you have a festival called Kartik Purnima. Okay. And in Utah, even today, there is a big festival uh, where on Kartik Purnima, it's a Purnima, so it's a full moon night, uh, just before dawn, 
uh, women and children go to a water body and put these small paper boats uh, with a lamp on it. Now, what they are reenacting effectively is the fact that they are saying goodbye to their men folk, the merchant who are setting sail. Hmm. So, and why do they do it in Kartik Purnima? Well, very simple, because that is the point at which winds switch from blowing from the south northwards to blowing from north to south. And I have myself gone to Konarak near, there's a Chandrabhaga beach very close to Konarak. And witness this, the winds blow from the north, they're steady and it's beautiful. And, you know, and you can, you can almost imagine standing there, these, uh, you know, stitch ships of, um, uh, Uriya sailors, uh, setting sail, um, to, uh, Indonesia. And in fact, there is a fair called Bali Yatra. Bali Yatra. Yeah. Voyage to Bali, which is celebrated in Katak to this day. Wow. You know, I actually lived in Odisha, Sanjeev. I don't know if I, Ever told you that? I didn't. Know this at all. I didn't. I did. So I, I, uh, you know, my my father used to work there in a in a Larsen and Tubro factory in a very very small place called Kansbal, which was off uh, Rodkela. So okay. I lived there for some eight nine years. I traveled also all through Russia. What a beautiful state! And yes, it, it was it was a heart of uh, uh, it was one of the key drivers of international trade in those days. And this is completely airbrushed out of our history books. So, in fact, Uriya history is so interesting. Hmm. Uh, I think, you know, at some point I'm going to write, a, I, I've been trying to instigate my uh, Uriya writers to write the history of their own state. It's, it's one of the most fascinating histories. It's also a very continuous history because unlike the, my own state, Bengal, which got overrun by the Turks, uh, Urissa managed to somehow uh, remain independent, even against uh, marauders like um, uh, Kala Pahar and so on. So net result of that is that a lot more has been preserved in Odisha than you would imagine. And so there is a lot of even whether it's oral history, architecture, all kinds of things that have been preserved there. And yet you read Indian history books. What do you get? One mention of Odisha is, oh, Ashoka invaded Kalinga. Mm-hmm. And it's a side story to his conversion to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, quite apart from the fact that the link of his invasion to Kalinga and his conversion to Buddhism is actually probably completely made up. I mean, there's no real uh, evidence that the two events are linked. Mm. Um, there is nothing else after that. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the very likelihood, the, the ending of the Mauryan Empire, at least part of it, was in fact done by a great Uriya king who, who overthrew the last vestiges of uh, um, Mauryan rule in uh, in Kalinga and then sacked um, uh, Pataliputra itself and he, he's, he's left his inscriptions uh, on this just outside Bhubaneswar. And then, of course, there are all these great dynasties uh, afterwards and all of them have mercantile links. There is, in fact, in Konarak, there is a, a very nice ins- uh, sort of carving of a foreign merchant presenting a giraffe to the king. Wow. Um, and it's, it's, it's really obvious that, you know, whoever he was, was either from Africa or was at least trading with Africa. So, you know, so there is so many interesting things. Fascinating. So that's, okay, that's closer to our east, uh, eastern, you know, the north, uh, northeastern part of our coastline. Take me through what you learned of the southern parts of our coastline. Uh, 
you know, the Andhra coast, Tamil coast, and what was its role in the Indian Ocean uh, trade routes, and uh, Kerala as well, the southwestern. So one of the things I do during all my uh, research is actually drive along as much of these places as I can. So I, I, uh, you know, I drove along the uh, Omani coast. I went and spent some time in Zanzibar. I went all over Southeast Asia. So as a part of this, I also drove down the Kerala coast mm. and up the Tamil coast. Mm. And it's absolutely fascinating because every few kilometers, there's some stunning thing. <laughs> okay. And you cannot, you can write a full book about each one of these things. I'm waiting so, for your book on that. <laughs> well, there's so much, right. And the, the, you know, one of the funny things is uh, you find temples with inscriptions, large inscriptions, and you can, you are not able to find anybody who has translated them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if historians out there, incidentally, uh, please, uh, if you if you know how to read um, some of these texts, they're not very difficult to learn how to learn these uh, uh, these scripts. You know, a few months you can probably master some of these um, uh, things, uh, and you will be able to read literally large numbers of Chola, Chera, Pandya inscriptions that have not been translated by anybody. Mm. So, what are the things? One of the things that's always told to us is apparently, uh, you know, Indians didn't write. That's what uh, is a British Rajira fiction that has been continued till now. But clearly you can find a lot of evidence of that our ancestors left for us. The fault is in us that we've not read them. Absolutely. And to be fair to the British, I mean, you know, they were, they had an agenda and which was to basically tell us that we didn't quite have a sense of history. Um, but the fact of the matter is they did, they themselves put in a better effort in trying to record a history than we have. So, for example, there are literally lakhs, lakhs of Sanskrit, Pali, Prakrit, Tamil uh, manuscripts that are there in our archives and in private hands, which have not been translated. So, as I said, any of you who are interested in getting into there is, this is one place where literally there are miles of work where no, no man has a woman has gone for for hundreds of years to, for you to explore. And these kinds of things are there everywhere along our coast. So, for example, you know, I'm driving along and I go to this small fishing village and it's called Kolachel. And there's nothing particularly important you would think to happen there, except there is a, a pillar there which was left behind by Martanda Varma. And why did he put that pillar there? Well, because that is where Martanda Varma defeated the Dutch. And it was not just a turning point in Indian history. It was a turning point in world history because till that point, the Dutch were the dominant maritime power in the world. Mm. So <clears throat> the Dutch had conquered, um, you know, South Africa, they had conquered Indonesia, they had taken over Sri Lanka, and they had these ambitions that they would be probably taking over the Kerala coast. Um, and it, and Martanda Verma, who was, you know, king of a very, very small kingdom, um, basically smashed them on the beaches of Kolacha. Mm. And as a result of which I'm giving you, the, uh, we are having this talk in English and not in Dutch. Dutch. Because from that point, the <coughs> Dutch company go, went into decline mm. and opened up the space for the French and then the English to come up. Mm. And this is astounding because you see, after Martanda Varma, the next time, an Asiatic power would defeat a 
Western power would be in 1905 when the Japanese defeated the, Russian. the, the, the Russians. So the last guy who had done it was Martanda Varma. Now in India, other than if you happen to be from maybe uh, if you're from Kerala, you may be knowing about Martanda Varma. The rest of the country knows nothing about Martanda Varma. It's terrible. Really sad. Uh, if I'm not, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, and the same thing. You just keep driving. You keep driving along the coast. You bump into all kinds of things. And by the way, even the Europeans left behind some very interesting things, which I forgot. So you drive up the Tamil coast. Now everybody knows about Pondicherry, right? But there are actually Pondicherry, the French actually had other enclaves as well. There's Mahi and Karekal and all these other places. And there is, in fact, also a place called Trankebar, which was a yeah. Danish settlement. And it's a beautiful place. You should, those of you, you just drive down from Pondicherry. It's, I think, an hour and a half or something. It's a great drive, incidentally, anyway. And then there are nice hotels right along the, uh, along the sea. And the remains of this Danish, of all, you know, you, you wouldn't <laughs> imagine, but Danish settlement, uh, which didn't succeed. But it has an interesting history because the Danish um, were the first people to bring in printing presses to India. Um, they were Danish missionaries and they had, they had brought in these printing presses. So one of the first places in India where printing was done was oddly enough by the Danes of all people. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I wonder how many of you guys uh, watching are aware uh, that uh, some people had bought the printing press uh, during Akbar's reign as well. And apparently Akbar said uh, he wasn't too interested uh, in the printing press. I wonder what India's history would have been like if Akbar had actually uh, uh, had actually taken the printing press from those Europeans. Counterfactual in history. Counterfactual. Impossible to, impossible <laughs> to guess what would have happened. Take me through then We've discussed the the northeastern coast. We've discussed the southern coast. Take me through the west and northwestern coast. So, which is Karnataka, Maharashtra, Gujarat, Sindh, uh, which is sadly in Pakistan now, but was a very uh, important and uh, you know had played a seminal role in the history. Excuse me, the history of the Indian subcontinent. As with everywhere, one thing you have got to understand is that India's coastline is a living coastline. So it is continuously changing. So the coastline you see is not necessarily the one that has been throughout our history. Mm-hmm. This is something, by the way, you need to know about all our coastlines, not just of the north, the northwest that I'm going to now talk about. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there are our legends also mention this. So the Kerala coast, for example, is supposed to have been taken away back from the sea by Arushuram. So you, you know, clearly a memory of maybe the sea receding at some point. Mm-hmm. Then there is the memory of sea coming in at some point, the memory of the, you know, Dwarka being swept away by, by, and Krishna's, uh, uh, Krishna's time, uh, being swept away by the sea. So there is already a folk memory of this coastline being alive and changing. Hmm. But it is in Gujarat, perhaps, where the, it is very, very stark. Hmm. So if you had gone to Gujarat in, um, four, say 5,000 years ago, okay? Hmm. This is sort of um, during the Harappan period, the landscape would have been completely different. First of all, Saurashtra would have been an island. It is not a peninsula, but an island. Sea levels were a little bit higher. And what is now the run of Kutch was actually the estuary of two major rivers. One was the Indus 
which used to come in uh, much eastward of where it does today into a place called Thatta, which is, by the way, still in India. It's at the, uh, it's at the um, Sindh-Gujarat border. And the other was the Saraswati, which came in through Haryana, through Rajasthan, and mm-hmm. went into the sea um, um, uh, just north of Dholavira. And so what is now the run of Kach was essentially uh, an estuary. The climate at that time was better. Mm. So it would have maybe looked a little bit more like the Sundarvans than the salt you see there today. Okay, interesting. And now, now, even more interesting is that Mm. explains the location of Dholavira. Now look up in a map. You will see that Dholavira is sort of marooned somewhere in the middle of... Why would ancient Indians want to build a large settlement literally marooned in the middle of nothing. And it had right. an organized port also, right? And Absolutely. I remember about it, probably the oldest proper port construction ever done. Absolutely. So the thing is, people know about Lothal. Lothal, as I will show you, is actually a, is actually just a customs depot for going to Dholavira. The real place was Dholavira. It was on like, an island. I like that term, customs depot. Yeah. <laughs> Green channel, red channel. Absolutely. And the main settlement was Dwarka. That was the main port. And it was an island in the middle of this estuary. But because the estuary then later dried up, it's become salt flats. But it's, it's a spectacular place, by the way. It's a huge settlement. Many times bigger than Lothal, by the way. And when you go there, you will see it was not just a huge settlement. It has got all kinds of uh, things, uh, water storage, this, that. It's quite a sophisticated place. But what is interesting from our perspective is that how did this port function? Well, it functioned in the following way. If you went, if you wanted to go south, you went to what is now called the little run of Kutch. You literally sailed out. Now you can't sail because it's all land, but because sea levels were higher, you would sail out from Dholavira towards Lothal. And before hitting the sea, this Lothal was, from what I can tell, the customs depot. Whether you were coming here or out, you would have to stop there and basically the customs officials would check whatever you were doing. And then you could sail down down the Konkan. But if you were going westward, you would have to go past Dwarka, hmm. or more importantly, Big Dwarka, where were probably a Harappan site. And w- look at the name. That is also itself telling. It means the gateway. Hmm. The gateway to what? <laughs> to the whole world of this, the ocean that was there, because the merchants were sailing out in both these directions. And of course, you could also sail up. Yeah. Uh, initially up the Saraswati, but once the Saraswati dried, you but you could still go up the Indus. Indus yeah. So yeah, you can clearly see that Hola Vira was a really important place. And by the way, spectacular site. All of you, if you ever go to Gujarat, there are many very great things to see in Gujarat. But definitely go and see Hola Vira. Fantastic, fascinating. Uh... There's also discussion. We'll we'll bring up questions from the audiences also, guys. You guys will get a uh, get a chance. Don't worry. I will ask those questions, but I have many of my own. Uh, so, Sanjeev, there's also you know some of the things that you discussed in your book of the dominance of India over those trading relationships. There was apparently uh, you know uh, an order given by Emperor Vespasian. 
to ban roman trade with india because apparently india was exporting a lot to rome but was not importing anything so losing a lot of gold sesterity uh, to india because of that trade deficit yes so you see that uh, for long periods of time uh, you know we, of course we are, we are simplifying for very long periods of time but certainly during the roman period what you have is you have india exporting um textiles uh, metallurgical goods india was very famous throughout the ancient world as um a source of uh, steel and and metal uh, products in fact um, the roots of damascus steel are uh, probably in india right absolutely and i will come to that that is a later period almost a thousand years later so we are right now talking about the roman period and so in the roman period the indians were exporting uh, these um, textiles metallurgical goods and also spices but here again indians were exporting black pepper which is an indian plant but the rest of the pl- uh, rest of the spices that they were selling to the romans were actually indonesian spices that yeah. they had purchased from the indonesians onto the east coast through yeah. the east coast then there was a trade route that went up uh, uh, across tamil nadu through the yeah. palgad gap onto yeah. the west coast and then was then re-exported to the Romans out. Okay. And and now they were obviously exporting all of this. So guess what they were importing? So mm-hmm. they were importing Italian wines, by the way, <laughs> Greek um, olive oil, and, um, you know, all kinds of luxury goods. But evidently not enough of it was being imported. So there was a large current account surplus that the Indians were running. Mm-hmm. So... how do you fill the current account surplus in ancient times well by basically you ask for gold mm-hmm. now this caused a big problem to the romans because you see if you are handing your gold out to or and silver as well to a you know to india then you don't have enough gold and silver to mint your own coins so this is equivalent of very severe monetary contraction mm-hmm. so now what so what do they do so that's why you have you know complaints in the uh senate about you know the loss of gold and silver to the indians mm-hmm. and pliny is bitterly complains about how many millions of uh, gold coins was having been handed out to the indians so finally the romans attempted to do um, the first line of attack always is uh, you know trying to control trade and what they did is they tried to uh, limit import from india which mm-hmm. failed miserably because um the indians uh, teamed up with the jews uh, and the nabatians to run various smuggling rackets <laughs> so ultimately that whole line of approach uh, failed so then what the romans did is they began to reduce the amount of gold and silver in their own coins oh so this is called standard procedure called debasement hmm. now this is a very tricky thing to do because the moment you begin doing this it's a slippery slope yeah. because they were always under pressure to do more and more of it and so they began to debase their currencies more and more and of course that caused all kinds of problems in the roman empire including inflation and so on but what is interesting is what the indians did in response they kept accepting these debased roman coins mm-hmm. in fact they seem to have contributed to this problem because you, they also seem to have run uh, counterfeiting rackets where the now that the coins didn't have so much gold you could counterfeit them also see when they had gold you have to provide gold because there's an intrinsic value 
But when there is no gold or less gold, then you can be counterfeited. So uh-huh. there, if you go to some of these sites, you'll also find counter, Indian counterfeited Roman coins. <laughs> so all of this was going on. Now, notice how similar this is to how the world runs yes, today. We are, talk, we are talking about what period? Third, fourth century? We are talking about the first, second, third century. First and third century. Okay. Third century AD. 1700 to 2000 years ago. Yeah. Now, look at how similar it is to today. The Americans run very large deficits with the rest of the world. Now, they obviously, how do they pay for it? What they do is they have excessively easy monetary policy and they print too many dollars and they hand it to everybody else. Everybody complains that the Americans print too many dollars, but they keep accepting them and building up reserves. And so the world is a circular place that keeps running. So this is how the internet world also used to run, except the difference was that instead of China, you had India, and instead of the US, you had the Roman Empire. <laughs> Fascinating. You know, our common friend Ashwin writes these books, right, of setting the modern era and the ancient era, and yes. running through narratives simultaneously. We should yes. tell him this idea. We should write a book. Of the Roman Indian trade and the America China trade. I think his his latest book, um, Vault of Vishnu, does does use uh, Ocean of Churn as one of its uh, sources. So, so he has already caught on to the idea. <laughs> you know, before I I open it up uh, for the audience, you know, I can I can never get enough of our conversations. So, but your perspective. Uh, and I know in a sense, I'm asking you to build on the theories that you spoke of in the Indian Renaissance, but for the uh, for the benefit of those who have not read that uh, book. And if you guys haven't, please do read it. It's a fantastic book. Uh, where did India lose the plot? You know, is it that others attacked us and therefore we lose lost it? Or did we lose our vitality and therefore started losing to invaders? Uh, so well, uh, what do you say? So um, one of the problems is that I am a complexity theory guy. So consequently, I am a little wary of having a unidirectional view of what led to what. But there is certainly a combination of factors does seem to sort of spiral in a particular direction. So what happens is around about the end of the 12th century, beginning of the 13th century, uh, the much of the world, the civilizations of that time, the main civilizations of that time, uh, all three of uh, all of them basically get faced by the same common shock. Okay. So, as I described earlier, you you know the Middle East was you know they had the, they had the the Arab civilization, um, Islamic civilization of the Middle East, the the Indians, particularly the Cholas in India, and then the Indic Indic civilization uh, inspired kingdoms of Southeast Asia, and then the Song Empire of um, of China. This was kind of uh, 11th, 12th century uh, what what was the great empires of the world, the economy of the world was run by them. And then end of the 1200s, beginning of early 1300s, all three of them faced this massive shock of marauders from Central Asia. The Turks. Well, in the case of India, there were the Turks. In the case of the Chinese and the Middle East, there were the Mongols who uh, had you know, the Turks invaded India, but very, very quickly thereafter, their own homeland got overrun by uh, the Mongols. And why... Are there somewhere that the Turks were also often the foot soldiers of Mongol armies? 
Is that well, true? obviously the Turks were in Central Asia mm-hmm. uh, and they were invading India, also invading the Persians uh, and they broke through. But very, very quickly thereafter, the Mongols broke through. And then there is a combination of Turks and Mongols. So very quickly, it becomes Turco-Mongol, so to speak. But what is interesting is that this combined sort of uh, horsemen from Central Asia break through everywhere so quickly. Because remember, the, the Chinese, the Indians, and the Arabs, and the Persians were all very conversant with Central Asian horsemen. They had been dealing with them for a thousand years and quite successfully. Mm-hmm. So the Arabs had gone into Central Asia and beaten them. The Chinese had been going into Central Asia. Uh, the Indians themselves had been pushing, had you know, under the Guptas, they pushed them out. And then, of course, you have plenty of Indian, uh, you know, kingdoms or Indian-influenced um, uh, places in Central Asia. Uh, and so clearly, all these three civilizations were quite used to dealing with. Central Asian horsemen. But suddenly they all fall apart. Now, why this is the case is a matter of a different debate. But it happens simultaneously, all three of them. Mm. Now, and it, there is death and destruction in all three in the Middle East, in India, and in China. Mm. What happens subsequently is quite interesting. Mm. After about a century or something of huge amount of destruction, the, the Mongols themselves begin to rebuild China in their own image. And then they get thrown out by the Ming, who then re-established Chinese rule. The and Mongols were the Yuan uh, dynasty. Kublai Khan. The Yuan dynasty. So they, they themselves get sinified. Yeah. And then, of course, they get thrown out themselves. And then the, the Ming come back. In the Middle East, you similarly have both the Persians and the Arabs push out the, 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 the Mongols. Uh, India is the only place where the Turko-Mongols continue. So the Turks, of course, keep uh, keep their rule. But then, of course, the Mongols come in again. Mm-hmm. After all, who are the Mughals? They are the Mongols. Yeah. And so India somehow doesn't, so it sort of staggers around for a while. Yeah. Except in the southern tip of India where sort of some semblance of Alam is under the, under the uh, Vijayanagar. Vijayanagar Empire. But northern India remains in continuous churn. For a long period of time. And unlike the Chinese who were able to sort of capture, you can say, the Mongols, and it happens to some extent with the Mughals ultimately. Hmm. But the pre-Mughal Turks were continuously coming and dynasty rises and it falls. So, you know, the Tughlaqs come, uh, before that the Khiljis come, so it's continuously turning and it's this completely, complete chaos. The Mughals, with stability, they also become more Indianized. And of course, then finally the, the uh, Marathas begin to sort of liberate uh, India. So, so that process, but then that process too sort of staggers around and then it falls apart with the British taking over India. Hmm. So now you can have a long debate about why exactly it is that the Indians didn't quite manage to do what, say, the Chinese managed to do. And we had a much longer period of foreign occupation and colonization. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a much longer debate and discussion, but it is an artifact of history, which we cannot deny. It's interesting. And this is, this is certainly an area where scholars should look, even China, for example. Yes, the Ming uh, did, uh, conquer, uh, did push the Yuan out and conquered back. But then the Manchus took over again and the Manchus yes. are not Han Chinese. So in fact, one of the most interesting things I'd read 
is that if the great wall of china is supposed to be the northern border of china why the hell is it in the middle of the country you know? it's not uh, quite in the middle of the country there is yeah, fair on china on the other side uh, today but there's a but fair amount of china on the other side so did they convert the invaders into us kind of well yes into very recent times so mm-hmm. let me put it this way first of all um the 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 in the the manchus were themselves not chinese chinese yeah um, and and so manchus are the king dynasty yeah from manchuria dynasty and who ruled india into the ruled china into the beginning of the 20th century mm-hmm. and they were themselves not chinese as such uh, and and kept a fairly clear distinction of their own ethnic uh, 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 sort of difference but um, but then of course what happens is that uh, uh, modern china uh, sort of when it sort of came into being did quite aggressively take over bits and pieces around itself uh, and incorporate them and sinify them uh, including places with like in mongolia or tibet or um, you know eastern turkmenistan or manchuria now these are not historically han chinese so they were they were absorbed into the uh, ambit and so in some ways while chinese civilization is a very old uh, uh, thing um, uh, just like indian civilization is a very old thing the current um, um boundaries of china are a completely modern construct fascinating fascinating look i can keep listening to you forever but we need to give uh, space to the audience as well so the first of the audience questions to you sanjeev is from akhilesh suman how will you connect it with indo pacific strategy of new india i guess he's talking about you know our historical roots how will you connect it with the indo pacific strategy of the new india so uh, well um, i have to be a little careful as a government uh, um, civil servant to as is also a diplomatic nehru center is a diplomatic center <laughs> so i'll have yeah so I'll, i'll i'll speak in generalities but let's say first thing that ha- that happens by having a maritime view of the world is the following they've got to stop thinking only of pakistan and china as our neighbors we have other neighbors if you take a maritime view of the world these include indonesia oman kenya australia which is a neighbor of ours please look up a map we think of australia as a pacific country but it's in fact also an um indian ocean country it's the second largest indian ocean economy right then also we need to begin to think of ourselves in a different way uh, take for example we need to take the andaman and nicobar island and their strategic significance a lot more seriously than we currently do um so once you begin to think about this in this way it completely changes our dynamics who are our neighbors who are our friends who are the countries with whom we should have we have had very very close linkages for example uh, you know indonesia uh cambodia all these countries have culturally had very strong linkages both ways incidentally not just one way it's not just that indian civilization so we shouldn't think of them as sort of ancient colonies far from it they were part of our civilization there are many indian things by the way which come from southeast asia including pan and supadi yeah and one of our greatest uh, dynasties the pallavas uh, were yeah, perhaps 
partly of Cambodian origin. So there is a lot of. Given- I read this controversial opinion that perhaps even the methodology to make idli came from Indonesia. I'm not sure about it, but I read yes, this. There is some controversy. Yes. But I, I had a, I had a Tamil friend who who, who uh, argued against that quite strongly. So hence, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know the history of the idli, but it is certainly the case that once we begin to think about these places in a different way, it changes. So, and it's not just eastward, westward as well. We have had close links with the Omanis, the Amriti, uh, uh, the Emiratis, the Iraqis, the Bahrainis. Historical, going back to the Bronze Age. And one of the problems of recent history, and particularly this, you know, uh, landlocked view of the world, is that when you look westward, you see Pakistan. And consequently, that that is the only thing you can see. And it colors even the view of things further out. So, you know, we, we till very recently used to only see the Middle East from the color of religion. Once we removed that color, we discovered, and has very recently, as you can see, we have very, very good relations. By the way, many of these countries, um, like the Saudis and the UAE and Oman, um, which have, you know, broken away from this old landlocked view of the world. Once you began to have a have a maritime view of the world, and and you know, we began to have a very different relationship with these countries in recent years. True. So I think there is something to be said about breaking out of this. Um, landlocked view because in and and it's in metaphorically it's also important because you know the land is still the sea is churning <laughs> you to do more creative things very very interesting way of seeing it and that is so true our our relations with the uae with saudi arabia with with oman are, are so strong these days uh you know and yes a lot of it is how we see the world our our mental construct itself uh, there's a uh, interesting question from Jitnyanza Pavse that we never connect uh, God, the story of our gods with history, but we have evidences that these stories uh, are true. And what will you say on that? Well, I mean, if you, if you, well, I'm not the mythology expert. Uh, I'm talking to the mythology expert, so I, I'll defer to his opinions on some of this. But as a historian, let me say. Uh, there is clearly a lot of uh, memories, uh, I would say cultural memories of ancient times scattered through our, our, uh, our, our mythology. I mean, of course, mythologies are not written in uh, midair. You, you know, those who were writing these mythologies, were constructing these ideas, are doing it in reference to things they see around themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, that, and that landscape is uh, embedded in our uh, way of thinking of the world and of course that landscape is also changing as I described earlier so therefore you see for example the Saraswati which now we call the Ghaggar is clearly a very important river there are so many archaeological sites from the Bronze Age and it then dries up, it's clearly a catastrophic event, it's described it's it's drying up the Saraswati and the, the whole idea of Vajnashana is very much there in the Mahabharata and many other texts. So that is very much there. Similarly, oh God, for, have you forsaken us? It's one of the yes, most forsaken us. No, the most heartrending line. Yes. So you have clearly these memories of these times there. Similarly, you know, 
we know that the end of the ice age uh, there were huge amount of flooding all over the world virtually every ancient civilization has a legend about the flood so uh, the middle eastern legends have the story of noah um there are stories the north american indians have these stories mesoamerican indians have stories um uh, you know the people of uh, the australian aborigines have stories of the great flood so every ancient people have a story about the great flood so of course we too have a story about the great flood it is the story of manu and you have the story that the manu and there are many manus through history instantly um, you know people don't realize this there are many manus through history the word manu incidentally literally means the lawgiver yeah. and so consequently there are many manus came the manusmriti everybody gets somewhat annoyed about incidentally is the last manusmriti there were several before it now anyway one of the early manus uh, probably the earliest one uh, is mentioned as the king of the dravidas from somewhere uh, along a river which is the dry riverbed of that is still there in southern india uh, it was it was still flowing till re- recent memory and he is warned by vishnu in the form of a fish that <clears throat> the great flood will come and similar to noah he then uh, kind of prepares for it and he creates this great ship and then he puts all the plants and minerals and uh, and so on and of course the saptarishis and he keeps them because he has to reestablish civilization at the end of the of the great flood and the the, the legend is that <clears throat> his ship then comes to rest somewhere along the foothills of the himalayas yeah. uh, and he then reestablishes civilization there um so you know so that is how the legend um, exists in our uh, in, in for us now the point is it is quite possibly a um description of the great flood as happened at the end of the uh, last ice age now we don't have to take it absolutely literally but you can clearly see that they you know that, that since everybody seems to have the same story and their the 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 geology shows that such a event happened at a certain point in time it's you know it's very likely it's some sort of a cultural memory um the same thing happens with the ramayan by the way you know if you if you visit many of the places related to ramayan it clearly describes the places they're talking about whether or not you think the events of the ramayan are true or not there's no doubt the places are true so if you go to kishkindha which is by the way very close to the archaeological remains of hampi you just cross the tungabhadra on the other side there is this very strange landscape of these rocks with uh, caves and so on and they are full of rock paintings by the way and you can clearly see monkeys running around everywhere and you have uh, sloth bears which again you can remember jumbo one so this is clearly a real landscape mm-hmm. now whether you believe there was a kingdom of uh, monkeys there uh, or this was basically describing a uh, um, you know neolithic tribe that happened to uh, use the monkey as a totem i don't know but the place is definitely a the valmiki's description of it is absolutely spot on he knew about the place it's a real place it's no and the you know in the west for example they have studied and they have come to the conclusion that there was actually a troy uh, the city and it's uh, 20th century of which iliad and odyssey were written and there was probably some actual historical ha- events which later could have got embellished and the same thing uh, you know could very very likely be true of uh, the ramayana and the mahabharat no doubt about it 
And the other thing that is in that is also to be remembered that the versions that we have are completely embellished. Hmm. So it's very difficult to tell exactly what. But let's say, for example, Valmiki's Ramayana. Now, <clears throat> Valmiki's Ramayana, except if you leave out the, uh, the last Uttara Ramayana and some parts of the first uh, account, uh, it's, it's quite obvious that Valmiki was not a contemporary of Ram. As he later becomes, as a result of the Uttara Ramayana, he becomes a contemporary of Ram. But the, the, the earlier tellings, it seems to be that he had heard the story. Mm-hmm. And it's very likely that by the time many centuries had passed, actually, by the time the Ram wrote, uh, Valmiki wrote down the Ramayana in the, in the format we know it. Mm-hmm. So the same thing was true of Homer. Homer is just one of the bards mm-hmm. who uh, had put the Iliad and the Odyssey together. But they predate him. There were many other versions of the story. And some of them have also survived, by the way. So, for example... We think of the story of, you know, the, the horse, uh, the Trojan horse. That is not there in any of Homer's writings. It is there in other renditions. So, same thing is true of the Ramayana. The Ramayana is written in various ways. The Valmiki is perhaps the most prestigious one and perhaps the oldest one. Uh, but um, the other versions of the Ramayana are just as valid in many ways. They are memories of 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 different other renditions of the story. So what is the one is impossible to tell. Fascinating. Fascinating. You know, I actually believe the the Manu story to be true. A historian called Graham Hancock, I'm sure you've read yes, of it. I assumed it to be true and actually used it in the Shiva trilogy that Manu was an ancient prince who re-established civilization. Another question from Suman Raj. How much time do we have, Sanjeev? Can we take five ten minutes? We can more? keep going uh, for however long you think. <laughs> Maybe ten minutes more. Okay. Um, so, so Suman Raj has a question. Hi, sir. Can you tell me what inspired you to write this book, and how did you start? Okay. I mean, uh, I'm not a trained historian. I'm a trained economist. That's what I do for a living. I am. Uh, Financial markets economist. I'm not even an academic economist. I made my living by uh, basically um, working, uh, you know, looking at financial markets, exchange rates, bonds, and things like that. And but I'm sorry. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> well, I actually like financial markets. So uh, I, no, I, I, I I enjoy being in a trading floor during a some, when some dramatic things are happening. So I like the buzz. <laughs> But um, so I will not say anything bad about financial markets because I I, I like the smell of battle. Um, so, but I also thought I have always had an interest in history, but I always felt that it was somehow we let ourselves down by telling them in this rather dreary NCERT way, NCERT kind of way. So the my early sort of exposure to history came from Amar Chitrakatha, like many people of our generation. But then it seemed to have no correlation with what we were reading in our textbooks, which was beyond dull. And then, of course, I lived in many other countries and read other histories. And I found, hey, this is quite interesting. Why don't we have anything about India? And then I began reading more and more. And then I discovered that somehow the storytelling to the extent we have in India has basically has been left and outsourced to Westerners. Now, nothing nothing wrong with Westerners writing about India, except that you know, it seems like the Indians have kind of given up writing about their own country. Mm. 
So that meant you had this absurd, um, you know, uh, situation that we were always talked about as some sort of a, uh, in the same way as sort of a botanist writes about an insect, <laughs> you know, in an orientalist kind of way, you know, they, those Hindus behave like this kind of, you know. <clears throat> so I said, why can't we write our own histories? So I began to research some stuff on my own. That's how the land of seven rivers came about. And when I decided, why not write about the oceans? So I began, and of course, I spent a lot of my life in and around the ocean in Singapore or Mumbai or Kolkata. So I began to research this book and began to write this up. How did I write this up? Well, obviously, I read a lot about this. You have to do. Uh, but one of the things I do do is I, I don't take the writings of other historians too seriously. I go and see the actual inscription and I actually go and see the place. Hmm. You know, for example, the fact of the matter is, uh, they, you know, when you're looking at Ashoka, for example, it's not like Romila Thapar was having breakfast every day with Emperor Ashoka. She also read the inscriptions. I can also read the inscriptions. I can also visit. So I can come to a different opinion. So I make a little bit extra effort and looking up not so much what the historians are saying, but what their primary evidence is saying. Interesting. Number one. Number two, I insist on visiting the places. Because quite frankly, unless you actually visit Dholavira, you cannot tell the sheer scale of the place and how it functioned at the port. Mm. See, if you looked up a map, it mm. looks 100 kilometers inland. But when you go there, you can see that, no, it's in an estuary. It's just that the salt flats on have, 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 are the, you know, have, are the leftovers of that estuary. So, I think you have to visit the places. So two things, visit the places, smell the air, drink the water, touch the thing you're talking about. It gives you a different feeling. And it also gives you a certain amount of confidence because very often you can clearly see that the people are writing without knowing anything. And, and you know, God bless his soul, Charles Allen, uh, probably the last of the Orientalist colonial historians, so to speak, of India. He died just six months ago. Um, and he, he, he wrote a book called The Coromandel or something to that effect about, by the way, also the Indian Ocean. And now it's quite astounding when you open the book on the very first page, he basically says that the Indians don't have very much to do with the Indian Ocean. And you know, by the way, other than this one raid that the Cholas did in Southeast Asia, there isn't much to be said about Indian engagement with the ocean. Really? Vasco da Gama came and discovered us. Yes. I can't believe in the 21st century people writing like this. <laughs> and Charles Allen is still considered that, you know, I mean, given when he passed away a few months ago, these sort of hagiographic, uh, you know, op-eds that were, these things that were written, obituaries were written. I'm sorry. This is utter nonsense. I mean, this is colonial colonialism. I mean, racist is the, is the least one can say about it. It's not even factually correct. <laughs> so you know, same thing he's written a book on Ashoka you know the uh, book is not about Ashoka at all there are some 10 pages in the whole book of 400 pages on Ashoka the entire book is about how the Europeans did us a favor by rediscovering, by rediscovering Ashoka so this is the kind of books that we happily have allowed this is what sells in our bookshops this is what we read and we don't seem to object to it so I thought that this is enough of this 
let's just begin writing it. So I've been, I, you know, and thankfully it's been quite successful. So I, I'm, I intend to keep going. <laughs> and clearly you can, one can see from the engagement and the questions you have tons and tons of readers right here in the, in the UK as well. And since you are speaking about Ali, you know, and Vasco da Gama discovering, you know, India <laughs> and the, and the ocean route. So there's a question by Vivek Kamath. Uh, is it true that an Indian merchant had a bigger boat than that of Vasco da Gama, the Portuguese merchant Vasco da Gama, uh, and that this merchant helped him reach India? Uh, no. So <clears throat> there are two separate questions, quite frankly. Um, the fact that the Indian Ocean had very large ships sailing back and forth is well documented. Um, the Indians had these ships, the Indonesians had these ships, um, and the Chinese had these ships. So all three had ships. The Arabs also had large ships. Um, interestingly, the Indian technology of uh, building ships was quite interesting. They, they used to sh- sew together ships rather than nail them together. And that's a different debate. But there were very large... I need some flexibility as well. I yes. mean, I'm not an engineer, but so I've been told. Yeah. Yes, because what it does is it allows you to beach the ships uh, yes. uh, as opposed to a nailed ship, which would fall apart if you if it got stuck in a shoal. Um, but, you know, there were different designs. The Indonesians had ones which had these um, things on the side. I forget the name, what 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 they are called in English. Um, but they, their ship design uh, was somewhat different. And you can see that in the walls of Borobudur. In fact, um, if in my book, Ocean of Churn has it on the cover, the Borobudur ship. And the Chinese had massive ships as well. So large ships was not what uh, Vasco da Gama brought to the uh, table. But there was indeed a, uh, when Vasco da Gama turned up in Madagascar, sorry, not Madagascar, the east coast of uh, uh, Africa, he, he was trying to look for some, uh, a, a uh, navigator who would take him across. And so he went to several of the Arab ports along the coast. And then I think it was in Malindi that he finally got a, uh, uh, pilot. Now, there is a lot of controversy about who this pilot was. Um, some people say he was Indian, some people say he was Arab, whatever it is. Um, and his name is, if I remember, Malema Kama or something like that. So, uh, which obviously doesn't correlate to either an Arab or a Hindu name. So it's not very clear who this person was, but it was a local of, of the Indian Ocean zone, uh, who was quite an experienced one who then led, um, Vasco da Gama across the ocean. Yes, that is. That is there was a local navigator who helped him across from Malindi to um, uh, 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 coast of Kerala in India. Calicut, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I mean, so Vasco da Gama didn't discover uh, India as we are taught in our history books. Uh, someone, maybe an Indian, maybe somebody else led him to it. Even, even he would not have. He, he even he. Would not have claimed to have discovered because, quite frankly, the, the, the India was well known. The, as I said, the Europeans had been trading with India since Greek and Roman times. Even in the case of Vasco da Gama, uh, by the time he was there, Europeans were going back and forth from India on Arab ships. Hmm. The thing that he did discover, to be fair to him, was going around Africa. Yeah, that he did discover. The route was different. Discovering India was certainly not this. 
which which broke the the control of the Venetians, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, it broke. It, there was a, yeah, it broke the control of the Arabs, the Turks, and the Venetians. So they controlled the uh, Eastern Mediterranean and the. Fascinating, fascinating. We can keep talking forever, uh, Sanjeev. You're a font of knowledge, a super achiever, and uh, a very cool guy. Nehru Center is, is proud and honored that uh, that you grace this stage. All the very best for uh, for the children's edition of your new book, and you. uh, look forward to hosting you. Uh, your the future books that you bring out, even more importantly, look forward to uh, to hosting you uh, and listening to you on uh, your views on economics post the budget, of course. Uh, yes. But in your role as the principal economic advisor, look forward to. It. Yeah, look forward. Maybe sometime in February after the budget is out. And um, till then, uh, everybody, stay safe um, and stay healthy. Thanks, thanks, Sanjeev. And all of you, please do check out uh, Sanjeev's books. They are available in the UK as well on Amazon. Uh, Ocean of Churn, Land of the Seven Rivers, Indonesia's. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Sanjeev. Thanks for. Uh, Thanks for coming over and thank you everyone for joining us in such large numbers. Thank you. Namaskar.